Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 3, 1899 in England, Keeping Up with the Joneses. The 1897-98 tour by Stoddart's team was again financially successful for the organisers, the Melbourne and Sydney cricket clubs. The financial position of the Melbourne club was especially strong, so much so they took the lead, on behalf of the players, to look to organise the next tour to England in 1899. This would see them bypass the Australasian Cricket Council, which had been set up in part to control the selection of sides moving forward. Conflict between the players and the ACC had been growing, as the players resented losing control of the valuable money-making opportunities that Tours of England presented. To try and cripple the ACC, 12 leading players, including Harry Trott, wrote to their colonial associations requesting they withdraw from the ACC unless the players were allowed to appoint delegates to that body. The New South Wales Association refused to meet with their players regarding their position. South Australia and Victoria were more open to the players' demands, but without universal support, the motion wouldn't go through. The ACC relented on allowing the proposed MCC tour to go ahead, but the issue of who controlled the profits from touring would come to a head sooner rather than later. The 1898-99 Shield season would form a trial for players to put themselves forward for consideration for selection. Victoria would win their second consecutive Shield, achieving victory in three of their four matches. It was a season dominated by Test stars, with Hill, Noble and Worrell all scoring two centuries, whilst Trumbull and Jones were the leading wicket-takers with 34 and 28 respectively. The season also saw a tour by a New Zealand side, the first that had visited Australia. They had early success when they defeated a Tasmanian side in Launceston, however it was outclassed by Victoria and New South Wales. The biggest thing to come out of the tour was Victor Trumper. He scored a mammoth 253 against the tourists. This had come after scoring 292 not out in more than a run a minute against Tasmania. He was also performing amazing feats in club cricket, scoring 562 runs in only three innings for his side Paddington. However, he only managed one half century in his four matches of Shield cricket, leading to questions regarding his effectiveness against high quality bowling, and as such there were doubts over whether he would be selected for Australia. Harry Trott would have led the side, but his mental illness precluded him from being considered. Once again, Ben Wardle would act as tour manager for the Australians, whilst Darling, Trumbull and Gregory were to be the selectors. Few surprises made up the side. Other than Trot, the 12 who petitioned their associations to abandon the ACC were all chosen. The three selectors, as well as Hill, Worrell, Noble, Kelly, Howe, Jones, Charlie McLeod and Iredale. Alfred Johns was again chosen as the backup wicketkeeper, whilst Victorian all-rounder Frank Labour was also selected, having averaged 60 with the bat the previous Shield season. It was considered to be one of the strongest sides to visit England, with many having experienced the conditions and coming off a dominant performance in 1897-98. Much like Hill had been added at the last minute of the 1896 tour, Trump will be added to the 1899 tour just before departure. Whilst Gregory had advocated for his selection, Darling and Trumbull had been concerned that his willingness to attack every ball meant he didn't have the patience required for English conditions. However, Trump had played for the rest of Australia against the touring squad in Adelaide prior to the departure and played a marvellous innings of 75. Darling and Trumbull realised their error and invited the young New South Welshman to join as the 14th member. He would play the same role that Hill did on that previous tour and act as Wardle's assistant, as well as only being entitled to £200 as opposed to the 700 the other members were receiving. For the first time in England, five tests were scheduled, as opposed to the customary three. They were still to be played to a maximum of three days though, unlike in Australia where matches were played to completion. They also stuck with the five balls per over, whereas the Australians had moved to six years previously. 
This reflected the more crowded English cricket scene, which had taken into account the size of the county championship, which added its 15th team in Worcestershire this season, whereas the Australians were only playing around the needs of the three-team Sheffield Shield. The English had also completed another successful tour of South Africa, although the locals had come close to their first ever win, finishing 32 runs short in the first of two tests. The shadow of the upcoming Boer War laid heavily over the tour, however, and with that conflict getting closer, the Australians would refuse an offer for them to tour South Africa on their way home from the UK. The Australians landed in England at the end of April and began preparing for their 35 scheduled fixtures. The first match came in early May against the south of England. The match ended in a draw, but featured nine wickets to Jones and centuries from Noble and Gregory. They lost the next match to Essex, despite 12 wickets to Trumbull, where an unheralded bowler, Sally Young, took 7 for 32 to bowl the Australians out for 74 in their final innings. The Australians immediately bounced back with an innings victory over Surrey, where Bill Howe took all 10 wickets in the Essex first innings, becoming the third Australian to complete the feat after George Giffen and Sammy Woods. He took another 5 in the second to end with 15 for the match. While some matches were ruined by rain, victories over in England 11 and Lancashire meant that the Australians went into the first test in good form. This match was to be the first test to be played in Nottingham at the Trent Bridge Ground. The Australians chose to give a debut to Trumper, who had scored half-centuries in the wins against the England 11 and Lancashire. Labour was also selected to make his debut. Backer keeper Jones was left out, whilst Worrell and McLeod, who hadn't put in any performances of note, were also left on the bench. The English side featured many prominent names. WG Grace, a month short of his 51st birthday, was to lead the side, whilst Jackson and Gunn also were selected. Ranji, Hayward, Storer, Hurst and Hearn had all played on the previous tour. New players to face the Australians included batsmen Charles Fry and Johnny Tildesley, who had both made test debuts on previous tours to South Africa, as well as one debutante, 21-year-old Wilford Rhodes, a left-handed orthodox bowler who had only debuted for Yorkshire the previous year. Fine weather greeted the captains at the toss, with Darling winning and choosing to bat. He opened with himself and Iredale, whilst debutante Rhodes commenced bowling with Hearn at the other end. Iredale was out shortly after the commencement for six, which brought Noble in to join Darling. The two proceeded cautiously despite the conditions, which everyone assumed were good for batting. The bowling was particularly tight, with Hearn being very difficult to score off. The English were containing Darling well, compared to some of his devastating innings during the previous tour. He still played a few of his trademark cut shots, but English bowlers were good at keeping the ball away from his favourable hitting arc. However, the Australians' defences were also up to the challenge, with Rhodes being eventually replaced by Grace. The two batsmen managed to make it to lunch without loss, having put on a partnership of over 50. Following the break, the Australians took the score onto 85. Darling then played back to a ball from Hearn, which kept low, leading to him being bowled for 47. Gregory joined Noble, and the two took the score past 100, before Noble became Rhodes' first victim when he was also bowled, having made 14. Hill came in at 3 for 109, and proceeded to put on 57 with Gregory, with Gregory doing the bulk of the scoring. He made his way to 48, before he became the second player dismissed just short of a half-century, this time to the bowling of Hurst. This brought Trumpet to the crease in his debut innings. However, it was not an auspicious start, as a young man was bowled in the next over by Hearn without scoring. This left the Australians at 5 for 167. Kelly joined Hill, and the two managed to get through to T without further loss. Following the break, the Australians continued with a slow rate of scoring. Hill played some good strokes through the leg side, and that began to lift the total towards 200. Kelly also began to open up with the partnership moving past 50 after just over an hour batting together. They continued to build, taking the score onto 229, with Hill reaching his 50. At this point, Kelly skied a ball off Hearn to high to deep mid-on. Hearst sprinted from deep mid-off to complete an excellent catch. This shifted the profile of the game, as the Australians, who were looking to build an imposing total, lost a further two wickets without adding to the score. Hill was run out in the next over for 52, 
whilst Howe failed first ball for a duck, caught a point off Rhodes. The Australians were now 8 down for 229. Debutant Laver joined with Trumbull and managed to see the Australians through to the end of the day without further loss, ending on 8 for 238, with honours between the sides even. The Australians could only add a further 14 runs at the beginning of day two, with Rhodes claiming the final two wickets to fall. Last man Jones was out to a well-judged catch by Fry, with Trumbull undefeated on 16. The Australians had ended with 252, but their cautious batting had meant it had taken over 150 overs to compile that total. Hernan Rhodes were the standouts for the English, with both claiming four wickets. The English innings started shortly after midday, with Grace and Fry opening. They adopted a different tack to the Australians, opting to take the aggressive option with their batting. They had some luck as Jones bowled Fry early on, but he was called for a front foot no ball. The runs were coming quickly, with both batsmen looking for scoring opportunities. They took the opening partnership past 50, and were putting the home side in a strong position. The total reached 75 before Grace pushed out at a ball from Noble, but could only edge behind to be out for 28. This wicket brought about a shift in the game as the Australians now tightened up their bowling and fielding. Jackson joined Fry, but found scoring difficult, eventually being caught at short leg by Darling off Noble. Fry brought up his 50, was then out trying to hit a Yorker from Jones, only having his stumps splattered. The English had fallen to 3 for 93, as lunch was taken soon afterwards. Following the break, Gunn and Ranji combined to take the score past 100. Ranji received a life when Iredale dropped a skied ball, whilst he received another when Kelly missed a simple chance off Jones. Gunn wasn't so lucky, dragging a wide ball from Jones back onto his stumps to be dismissed for eight. Haywood came in and in the next over immediately danced down to Noble. He hit the ball to Darling at short leg, who dropped the catch, but had quick enough reactions to get it to Kelly at the stumps, who ran out the batsman for a duck. The English were now 5 for 117 as Tildesley joined Ranji. They built a substantial partnership, with Ranji playing some sumptuous drives. Tildesley also ticked the score along, taking English past 150. Ranji started batting more recklessly at this point, and this ended up leading to his dismissal when he played on from Jones for 42. At this point, the English innings collapsed, losing their last five wickets for only 23 runs. Howell and Jones both claimed two wickets apiece, whilst Jones finished with five for the innings. The English ended on 193, trailing by 59 runs. The Australians still had just over an hour left of batting for the day to help set up the game. Noble was promoted to open with Darling. Darling started quickly, racing to 14, but was then bowled by Rhodes trying to swipe across the line. Hill joined Noble and the two batted well, waiting for the bad ball to put away. Grace rotated his bowlers but could not find another opening. The Australians ended the day on 93, with Hill on 41 and Noble 38, with a lead of 152, a strong position to push for a win. The Australians looked for quick runs on the beginning of the final day. The score raced past 100 quickly, with Hill following up his first innings half-century with another. Noble was trapped LBW by road soon afterwards for 45. Iredale joined Hill and the runs continued, taking the Australians past 150 before Iredale was run out going for a quick single. Trumper managed his first test runs, but was bowled by Jackson for 11, whilst Hill was out in the same over, caught low down at point by Grace off Jackson for 80, which included seven boundaries. Jones was promoted for quick runs, but could only manage three, whilst Labor scored the same amount. The Australians were now at 7 for 180. Trumbull and Kelly put on a quick 46-run stand, benefiting from multiple drop chances by the English wicketkeeper Stora. Trumbull was a dominant partner before he was dismissed for 38. The Australians took the score onto 230 and declared as lunch was taken. The English were left with a target of 290 in the three hours left in the day, meaning the Australians were the only side with a realistic chance of victory. The English started with Grace and Fry. Grace began with a single off Jones and faced up to the second over from Howe. Here, he was bowled by a ball that broke back insignificantly. He was replaced by Jackson, but he received almost a carbon copy of the ball Grace was dismissed on and was out in the same way. 
Ling Lashori two down after the second over. Gunn and Fry then defended firmly for a time before a misplayed shot saw Gunn bowl for three with a score at 10. Ranji joined Fry, who made it to nine before he took a wild swipe off Trumbull, only to send the ball high to Jones at deep mid-off, who completed the catch. After not even an hour, the English had collapsed to four for 19, and the Australians were on the march to victory. Ranji had other ideas, though. He adopted different tactics than his teammates, attempting to score wherever possible, even taking dangerous singles. This had the desired effect of relieving some of the pressure, though, as the Australians couldn't chain dot balls together. He found a willing partner in Hayward, who stuck with him for almost an hour in compiling 28. Both batsmen got lies, with Darling missing each in turn at short leg. Shortly afterwards, one of the short singles had Ranji caught short by Labour, who broke the stumps with an underarm throw. Ranji turned to head off, but the umpire, former English test player Dick Barlow, recalled the batsman, saying, You're not out. The incident so infuriated the Australians that Darling would write to English cricket supremo Lord Harris, who promised not to use Barlow again in tests. The two batsmen put on 63 and took the score to 82 before Trumbull finally achieved the breakthrough, spinning one back through the gap between Hayward's bat and pad. This left the Australians just over an hour to claim the remaining five wickets. However, once again, Ranji was a stumbling block. He batted even quicker in the last hour, taking his score past 50 and hitting multiple boundaries. Tildesley stuck with him until there were less than 30 minutes remaining before he was caught behind off Trumbull. New batsman Stora was playing poorly, leading Ranji to farm the strike and move into the 90s. Stora was eventually out LBW to Jones, but the English had delayed the Australians long enough there was no time to force a result, with the match being declared over at the fall of Stora's wicket. Ranji was unbeaten on 93, having batted for two and a half hours and hit 11 fours. He was received enthusiastically by the crowd, who applauded his incredible effort. The Australians were left to rue their missed opportunities as the drop of Ranji in the second innings was probably the difference in them being able to force a win. This match marked the final time that WG Grace would play Test Cricket. Now over 50 and with slowing reflexes, he was finding it difficult to deal with the extreme pace of Jones. Furthermore, despite taking an excellent catch to get rid of Hill in the second innings, he was no longer the superb fielder of his youth. Speaking with Stanley Jackson after leaving Trent Bridge, after the completion of the test, he remarked, It's no use, Jacker. I shan't play again. He was still chosen for the second test, but, as one of the selectors, favoured the selection of McLaren, who hadn't played in the first test due to family and illness concerns, over himself. He ended his test career having played 22 matches, scoring over 1,000 runs at 32 with two centuries. His first-class career would continue until 1904, where he combined with his good friend Billy Murdoch in establishing the short-lived London Cowley side before his career ended. It is difficult to comprehend just how big a figure Grace was in cricket. He played at first-class level for 35 years and was, at times, the most recognisable person in the British Empire, with his distinct size and beard. He scored over 50,000 runs and took over 2,800 wickets in his first-class career and was the most financially successful cricketer of his age, with his presence being a massive draw wherever he played. He was one of Wisden's six giants of the Wisden century and was an inaugural member of the International Cricket Hall of Fame. Despite his pending international retirement, Grace still fronted up for the MCC following the first test, scoring 50 in an eight-wicket loss to the Australians in a match where Jones took 10 wickets and Hill scored a century. A 10-wicket victory over Cambridge Uni and a draw against Yorkshire took the Australians up to the second test at Lords. The Australians made one change, with Worrell coming in for Iredale, whilst the English would make five. As stated earlier, McLaren came in for Grace and took up the captaincy, whilst Dick Lilly took up the wicketkeeper role in place of Storer. Gunn, Hurst and Hearn, all who had little impact in the previous match, were replaced by three debutants: Batsman Charles Townsend, spinner Walter Mead and Gilbert Jessup, a big-hitting all-rounder from Gloucestershire. McLaren was successful at the toss and chose to bat on a carefully prepared pitch that was expected to be good for run scoring. McLaren was joined by Fry, whilst waiting for him at the end of his run-up was the Australian firebrand Ernie Jones. McLaren took four runs off the Australians' first over. 
Howe started at the other end with the maiden. With McLaren back on strike, he attempted to hit Jones across the line, only to be clean bowled by a thunderbolt. The English were now one for four, and Jones was fired up for a big performance. Ernest Jones was born on the 30th of September 1869 in Auburn, South Australia. Growing up in a mining community, Jones became quite strong compared to his peers, and as such was able to develop into the fastest bowler in Australia. He made his first class debut for South Australia in 1892, and quickly challenged all the best batsmen with his pace, leading to a test debut in 1894 against Stoddart side. He only played the first test of that series, but was chosen to tour England in 1896. There, under the leadership of Harry Trott, Jones developed into a far more consistent bowler, shortening his run-up but maintaining his pace. The working-class Jones challenged the establishment players in England, including W.G. Grace, supposedly sending a ball through the great batsman's beard. Jones was also a quality Australian rules footballer, winning five premierships in the South Australian football competition. Whilst he had been called for throwing in previous years, he had worked hard on his action and there were few questions by the time the 1899 tour rolled around. Jones was one of the first picked in the Australian side and cricketers like Stanley Jackson ranked him ahead of even Tom Richardson as the best fast bowler the game had seen to that stage. The second test at Lords would be the scene for his finest performance. Jones' effort were only just starting it with the wicket of McLaren. Ranji replaced his captain and started with an all-run five off Jones with one of his trademark shots to leg. However, in trying to repeat the stroke, he had a leading edge back up the pitch, where Jones took the return catch. Townsend came to the crease and made five before Howe got in on the act, having him well stumped by Kelly. This left the English at three for 20. Jackson joined Fry and the two settled for a while, taking the score on to 44, before Fry fell to 13 after an hour of batting, caught in the slips by Trumbull off Jones. Noble, who had replaced Howe, got the new batsman Hayward out for one in the next over, with an in-swinger collecting his off stump. Tilesley played some good strokes, but he was out caught at third slip off Jones for 14. The English had collapsed to 6 for 66 after having chosen to bat. Debutant Jessup joined Jackson, who was holding up his end well. Jessup was a risk taker, and this paid off for him. He didn't wait for the loose balls to play his shots, attempting big hits off good length balls. Shots flew just out of reach of the fielders, with Jessup racking up the boundaries. His energy also saw Jackson increase his tempo, firing the boundary multiple times with drives and cuts. The run scoring increased up through the lunch break, with the score racing past the 150 as the break was taken. Jackson reached his 50 by this stage, whilst Jessup was in one boundary of the milestone. Following the break, the English got some luck as Jackson was dropped by Hill at slip. Jessup brought up his own 50, but was then out, caught it long on off Trumbull. His 51 included nine boundaries. From here, the English couldn't find another significant partnership. Jackson was out for 73, with 10 fours, with the score on 184, giving Jones his fifth for the innings. Jones will go on to take the final two wickets to end with his best test figures of 7 for 88, which were all the more remarkable given the flat nature of the pitch. The English total of 206 was seen as a major underperformance and gave the Australians the advantage in the match. The Australians still had two hours to bat, with their innings starting with Worrell and Darling after tea. The English bowlers of Jessup and Mee couldn't make any headway, the Australians moving quickly to 27. McLaren then turned to Rhodes, who struck twice in his first over, dismissing both openers. With a score of 2 for 28, Hill and Gregory came together. They took the score past 50, although Hill was lucky to survive a stumping opportunity when Lilly failed to take the ball cleanly. Gregory's innings lacked fluency, with most of his runs coming from top edges until he was eventually caught behind for 15 off Jessup. This brought Noble to the crease at 3 for 59. This partnership would see out the rest of the day with some sparkling batting. Both batsmen found regular boundaries, with Hill's shots through the leg side being a highlight. McLaren rotated through seven bowlers without drawing a chance from the two batsmen. Hill would race past 50 whilst the score was moving along at better than run a minute. 
By the time the stumps were drawn, the Australians had moved to 3 for 156, trailing by only 50 runs, with Hill on 72 and Noble 42. The Australians started slowly on day two, with Noble and Hill re-establishing their partnership. They were helped by some poor English fielding, with many missed fields granting easy singles. Hill was also missed behind the stumps. Noble passed 50, and the two moved the score on to 189 before the English finally made the breakthrough, with Rhodes having Noble caught by Lilly for 54. He'd shared a 130-run partnership with Hill and taken the Australians within 20 runs of the lead. He was replaced by his colonial teammate, Victor Trumper. The two youngsters, Hill was 22 and Trumper 21, then set about demolishing the English attack. Hill went to his century with a trademark shot through the leg side, but even then he was being outshone by the younger man. Trumper's attacking instincts hadn't always paid off on this tour, but today it was all coming together. His timing was superb and he was adept at playing both the full and short balls, scoring all around the ground. The score raced past 200 shortly after they came together and continued to grow as the session progressed. Hill received another life on 119 when he was dropped by Ranji. Finally, with lunch close at hand, he was dismissed for 135, caught low down on the boundary by Fry off Townsend. He'd batted for four hours, hit 17 boundaries and set the Australians up from a wobbly position when he'd come to the crease. Kelly joined Trumper and the two went through to lunch with a score of 5 for 283, a lead of 77. Following the break, Trumper went to his half-century as the 300 was brought up. Kelly found soon after at 306 off Meade, but Trumper provided a willing partner to Trumper, content to hold up an end whilst Trumper did the bulk of the scoring. Trumper continued to play attacking cricket. He received one bit of luck as an edge just went past the outstretched hand of Thurslip on its way to the boundary, but other than that provided no chances. He raised his maiden test century to enthusiastic applause from the packed Lord stands. Trumper was eventually dismissed for 24, having shared an 80-run stand with Trumper. Laver and Howe both made ducks, whilst Jones provided some hitting that took the score past 400. By the time the final wicket fell, the Australians had finished on 421. Jessup, Rhodes and Townsend had each claimed three wickets for the English. Trumper was undefeated on 135, with 20 boundaries made in just over three hours, the first of what will be many great performances to come. The English trailed by 215 on the first innings and had a big task ahead of them to save the match. In their favour, the conditions were still great for batting. However, as in the first innings, there was an immediate collapse. McLaren sent Hayward up the order to open the batting with Fry. Jones's pace was still blistering, and his second over clean bowled Fry for four. Next over, Howe had new batsman Ranji caught a point for a duck. Townsend soon after became Jones' ninth victor for the match, when his stumps were also disturbed, leaving the English at three for 23. Jackson joined Hayward, who had survived a caught-behind chance off Jones, and the two, with careful cricket, set about rebuilding the innings. They stuck together for almost an hour and a half of difficult cricket, as Darling rotated his bowlers and fielders so that the batsmen couldn't easily find runs. The two managed to take the score along to 94 before Jackson, trying to hit a long hop from Trumbull, managed to bunt a return catch, falling for 37. This was the final act of the day's play, leaving the English still trailing by 121 going into the final day. McLaren joined Hayward, who had ended the second day on 42, at the beginning of day three. McLaren started slowly, but soon started to demonstrate why he was considered one of the top batsmen in England, driving cleanly along both sides of the wicket. Hayward went past 50, and with the two of them at the crease, the English position was improving. They took the score past 150, and were looking quite comfortable. Here, Darling turned to the yet unused bowling of Labour. This proved a masterstroke. Labour had Hayward caught at slip by Trumbull for 77, an innings which included 11 boundaries. Within 10 runs, he had also dismissed Tildesley and Jessup for four apiece. This saw the English drop to 7 for 170. McLaren continued on, moving past his own 50, but he was running out of partners. Jones completed his 10 fur by bowling Lilly, whilst Noble finished the off the innings with the final two wickets. McLaren had made a masterful 88 not out with 16 fours, 
but he only managed to get the English up to 240. This was a lead of only 25, which the Australian openers of Worrell and Darling were able to polish off without loss before lunch, giving the Australians a 1-0 lead in the series. At the conclusion of the match, W.G. Grace, who had been in the sands for the entirety, approached the Australian dressing room. Upon his arrival, he called for Trumper and presented him with one of his own cricket bats. He said this was from the present champion to the future champion. High praise indeed from arguably the greatest cricketer who had lived to that point. The Australians' good form continued in the matches following the second test, winning all three prior to the third test at Headingley by big margins. Monty Noble took seven in the second innings against Leicestershire to help bowl them out for 28, whilst Trumbull, Noble and Darling all scored centuries in an innings victory over Derbyshire. The Australians therefore went into the match unchanged. Coming off their loss in the second test, the English again made five changes. Townsend, Jessup, Tardsley, Mead and Rhodes were all dropped. In their place came two debutants, right-handed batsman Willie Quaife and left-arm pace bowler Sailor Young, who had distinguished himself in Essex victory over the Australians at the beginning of the tour. Hearn returned to the side after missing the second test, whilst John Brown came in for his first match since the 1896 tour. The final spot was taken by Johnny Briggs. There was some concern over his selection, as he had suffered a bad hit to his chest earlier that week from the bowling of Tom Hayward and hadn't seemed to recover fully, with many believing Rhodes, who would have been playing at his home ground if selected, should have been retained. Darling won the toss and chose to bat. The pitch was a soft one, with rain having fallen the night before, and favoured the bowling initially. The weather was fine though, and as it dried out it would become good for batting. Darling's hope that his batsmen could see out the difficult period were dashed early however. Kelly was promoted to open with Worrell. Worrell opened the scoring with some big shots in front of the wickets, but his partners couldn't stay with him. Kelly fell to Briggs without scoring, caught by Fryer's short leg, with Noble replacing him. In the next over, Worrell cut a ball to third man. Noble started running, but Worrell didn't respond, leaving Noble stranded as the stumps were thrown down, also out for a duck. Gregory then made a trifecta of zero-figure scores when he was caught behind off Hearn. Worrell had done all the scoring to this point. The Australians were in a perilous position of 3 for 24 as Hill came to the crease. The two Australians then steadied the ship over the next hour, putting on 71 runs. Worrell was the dominant scorer, hitting multiple boundaries and drawing comparisons to the feats of the late Percy MacDonald. Overall, he hit 14 boundaries in innings of 76, but he was run out with a sharp throw by Quaife. The two had taken the score on to 4 for 94. From here, the Australians struggled to build any partnerships of substance. Hill played doggedly, holding up an end, but not batting with his usual free-flowing style, and he was lucky to survive a sharp chance at slip. Darling could only manage nine before being well caught at mid-on off Briggs. Trump would join Hill at 5 for 114, and the two looked to repeat their heroics of the previous test. They started well, but the introduction of debutant Young proved a decisive factor. He removed Trumper and then Hill within a run of each other, with Hill being dismissed for 34. From here, the final three wickets managed to put on 40 runs, with Trumbull left not out 20, but the Australian total of 172 was a disappointment given they had won the toss. Young was a standout bowler with 4 for 30, whilst Briggs finished with three wickets. The Australian innings had finished just before tea, giving the English just over two hours to navigate before the close of play. Brown opened with McLaren, facing the bowling of Trumbull and Noble. They started well, Brown in particular being damaging with the cut shot. They moved the score on to 27 before Trumbull beat McLaren in flight, with the English captain hitting a simple return catch. Ranji could only manage 11 before hitting a ball from Noble to mid-on. Quaife joined Brown and the two took the score past 50 before Brown fell for 27, Noble's second victim. When Jackson was out for 9, the English were 4 for 69 and a difficult position as Fry joined Quaife. Quaife was batting in a stonewalling fashion having taken an hour to make nine runs. Fry was more adventurous, moving the score on with a series of drives and shots to the leg boundary. The two managed to put on 50 before the close of play, with Fry ending the day on 38 and Quaife 20. The English score stood at 4 for 119, 
trailing by only 53 runs. After play on day one, Briggs suffered a seizure as he attended a music performance that night. There was so serious that he was rushed to hospital and could take no further part in the match. During his stay in hospital, he became one of the first people ever to receive an x-ray, which showed that the broken rib had damaged his heart. He spent a long period of time recovering in an asylum. He attempted to come back the following season, but he was finished as a test player. He'd been immensely popular in Australia and was a fixture down under, touring on five occasions, being the first player to take over 100 test wickets, finishing with 118 to go with 815 runs at 18. The news about Briggs cast a poll over the proceedings of the second day. The Australians started the better, with Jones striking his first over to bowl Quaife without adding to his overnight score. In the following over, Fry was also dismissed without addition, being bowled by Noble. The Australians were now in the driver's seat, having the English six down. With the absence of Briggs, the English only had three wickets remaining. However, Hayward and Lilly came together to form the most substantial partnership of the match. Hayward was fortunate to survive a chance down the leg side, but settled in support of Lilly, who played the more aggressive role. The two took the score to parity with the Australians and then set about building a lead. Lilly was adventurous with his stroke making, but his chances came off, bringing up his 50 after only an hour of batting. The two put on a 93-run stand, taking the score past 200 before Trumbull managed to dismiss Lilly for 55. The final two wickets could only add eight, with both falling to Trumbull, ending the English innings at 220. Hayward had batted resolutely in making 40, whilst Trumbull had been the pick of the bowlers with five for 60. The Australians set about trying to reduce their deficit of 48 as quickly as possible. Openers Worrell and Darling attacked, bringing up 34 runs in only 20 minutes. Then, Worrell was caught by the substitute Tilsley in the deep off the bowling of Young. The following over, bowled by Hearn, saw Hill take strike, the openers having crossed on Worrell's dismissal. Hill navigated the first three balls before being bowled middle stump for a duck. Gregory replaced him, was caught at slip off the first ball he faced, completing a pair for the match. Noble faced a hat-trick ball, but suffered the same fate as Gregory, caught at slip, also completing a pair. Hearn then became the second Englishman after Billy Bates to complete a hat-trick, and the first to do so in England. The Australians lost four wickets without adding to their score, and when Darling was caught at third man for 16 off Young shortly after, the Australians had collapsed to 5-39, still trailing by nine runs. The English looked set to level the series. However, the Australians dug in. Trumper and Kelly combined to put on a 58-run stand, with Kelly surprisingly being the dominant one in the partnership. He made 33 of attacking cricket, taking Australia into the lead. Young bowled well during this period, drawing many plays and misses. After an hour, Kelly was caught behind off the bowling of Hayward for 33. This brought Trumbull in to join Trumper. These two combined for another significant partnership, taking the score past 100 before Trumper was out for 32 with another hour-long stand. This saw Labor join Trumbull with a score at 740. At this point, the absence of Briggs was being felt, as the English were now having to rely on part-timers Hayward and Jackson to deliver the overs. As such, the partnership of Trumbull and Labor was able to build rapidly. Trumbull was the more comfortable of the two, hitting some powerful drives, whilst Labor was luckier, with many of his runs coming through edges in the slips. The two took the score past 200 with a 73-run stand, before Trumbull was run out for 56 from third man by Fry. The final two wickets fell soon after, with Labor last out for 45, becoming Hearn's fourth victim. The Australians recovered, putting on 185 for the last five wickets to end on 224, sending the English a target of 177 to level the series. The English were able to navigate seven overs before stumps without loss, taking the score onto 19 and putting themselves in the box seat for victory. However, the weather had other ideas. Rain fell heavily overnight, meaning the start of play was pushed back an hour, before more rain took away any chance of resuming the match. As such, the game ended in a draw, one which the English would rue their bad luck, having made most of the play. Their next chance to level the series would be at Manchester a fortnight afterwards. The Australians continued to dominate the tour matches, going undefeated in the four games between the tests, including three wins. 
However, Clemhill was suffering from a growth on his nose, amongst other illnesses. This meant his participation for the rest of the tour would only be in three of the county matches and none of the remaining tests. It was a testament to the quality of the rest of the Australians batting that they could cover for their best performer on the tour to date. The Australians would also lose the services of their backup wicketkeeper Johns, who left the tour early upon receiving news of his father's death. He returned to Australia and took over his father's lift manufacturing firm, never playing high-level cricket again. The Australians were therefore forced into one change for the Old Trafford Test, with Idale coming in to replace Hill. After their improved showing, the English only made two changes, with Briggs and Brown going out to be replaced by Bill Brockwell, who had been 12th man in the previous tests, and another debutant in Bill Bradley, a fast bowler from Kent. The match was also significant as James Lillywhite, who had captained the English in their first ever test match, was acting as one of the umpires. The match drew a massive crowd, with 23,000 attending on the first day alone. McLaren was again successful at the toss and chose to bat. Quaife and Fry opened for the English, whilst Jones and Noble commenced for the Australians. They achieved an early breakthrough when Quaife was well caught by a diving darling at short leg off Noble for eight. Fry successfully drove Jones to four, was out next ball trying to repeat the stroke, edging onto his stumps. At two for 18, Ranji and McLaren combined. Ranji was looking to hit most balls and drove the scoring onto 47. Both batsmen then fell off that score, with Ranji being caught off Jones for 21 before Noble beat McLaren in flight to bowling for eight. This left the English four down and questioning the decision to bat first. Here though, Jackson was joined by Hayward. Whilst Hayward batted carefully, Jackson looked to force the game. He found the boundary multiple times off Noble and Howe, dominating a 16-run partnership that took the score past 100. Jones was then brought back at this point and achieved the breakthrough, with Jackson missing a cut shot to slip to be out for 44. Brockwell replaced him and joined Hayward at 507 after lunch was taken. Another partnership came together and whilst Brockwell only managed 20 runs, his attacking cricket forced the Australians to change their bowling lengths, affecting them for the rest of the innings. When he departed at 154, Lilly joined Hayward. Hayward, who had been batting for over two hours for his 50, now started to accelerate. He made good use of the pace of Jones, often cutting him to the boundary. Lilly also scored quickly and the total sped past 200. Darling tried all his bowlers to no avail. Lilly brought up his own 50 and then hooked a ball high to long leg. Darling set it under it but couldn't complete the catch. Fortunately for him, it didn't cost the Australians too much as Lilly was trapped LBW by Laver shortly after for 58. He'd shared a 113-run stand with Hayward and given England the advantage. Shortly after, Hayward brought up his century, the first by an Englishman in tests this series. The crowd roared their approval and were so boisterous the match had to be delayed for several minutes. Hayward found another willing partner in Young to continue building the innings, with Young hitting several hard shots through the onside. The two took the score past 300 before Hayward was out for 130, caught at mid-off off Jones. He had batted for over four hours and hit 18 boundaries. With English now 8 down for 324, the Australians were hopeful of quickly wrapping up the innings. They started well, dismissing Hearn for one, but the final pair of Young and Bradley then frustrated them for a further 35-run partnership, with last man Bradley remaining not out 23. The innings ended with Howe bowling Young, but not before he had made 43 and taken the score under 372, an excellent result given the poor start. Jones and Noble both claimed three wickets, but have been quite expensive in doing so. With only a few overs remaining until stumps, Darling protected his main batsman, sending out Laver and Kelly to open the batting. Laver fell for a duck to the debutant Bradley, but Kelly and new man Howe then saw Australia through to stumps at one for one. Day two did not start well for the Australians. With only six on the board, Bradley sent Kelly's middle stump flying, whilst Howe followed soon after when Young disturbed his stumps. Worrell could only manage 14 before he became Bradley's third victim, whilst Gregory was trapped LBW for five by Young. This left the Australians in a precarious five for 35. 
Noble and Trumper recovered to take the score past 50, but when an inswinger from Young bowled Trumper and then a similar bowl delivered the same fate to Darling, the Australians were 7 down for 57. The 30,000 English fans in attendance were in raptures. Noble, though, was hanging tough. He'd taken 15 minutes to score and was in for over an hour before he reached double figures. He found a willing partner in Trumbull and the two started to rebuild the innings. Eventually, McLaren had to rest his opening bowlers, Bradley and Young. At this point, scoring became easier and the two batsmen were able to take the score past 100. Eventually, Bradley was brought back and this led to the wicket, with Trumbull hitting a catch to McLaren at third man. He'd made 44 runs in over an hour and a quarter and put on 82 with Noble. Iredale then came to the crease. He played some attacking strokes, was also beaten often and lucky not to be dismissed. Noble's defence continued to be stout and eventually brought up his 50 after over two and a half hours at the crease. The score moved on to 195 before Bradley got the breakthrough, having Iredale caught behind for 31. Jones was last out one run later, ending the Australian innings on 196. Noble was undefeated after three hours at the crease for 60. Bradley had taken five wickets on debut, whilst Young had four, but again the English were ruining their lack of penetration in their support bowling. Still trailing by 176, the Australians were asked to bat again. Given his form, Noble was sent back out to open the partnership with Worrell. Already tired from the first innings, Bradley and Young were not the same force they had been, and Worrell especially was able to score easily runs. He was fortunate to be dropped when only on one by Lily off Bradley, and from then would go on to build the Australians' total. Noble adopted the same tactics as in the first innings, and again his defence was resolute. The Australians managed to make it to 93 before the first wicket fell, with Worrell, having made 53, being caught off Young at short leg. Trumbull came in at 3 and took the score past 100 before he was caught at slip for 7. Trumper came to the crease, and the two New South Welshmen managed to see out the rest of the day, ending at 2 for 142, although Trumper was dropped by Lily on 3. Noble, having made 60 in the first innings, had already made his way to 59 by the close of play, whilst Trumper was 18 not out. The Australians started the third day still trailing by 34 runs. Rain had fallen the previous evening, but the pitch was not too affected by it as play started. The English bowlers started well, with Hearn beginning with six consecutive maidens to Noble. Trumper, after a sluggish start, began to bat freely, with some now trademark big hits through the onside. The innings defeat was saved just before 12, whilst Trumper brought up his 50 after an hour and a quarter of batting. McLaren cycled through his bowlers before eventually returning to Hearn just after the score reached 200. This brought about the breakthrough as Hearn beat the forward defence of Trumper to bowl in for 63. He had shared an 88-run partnership with Noble. Gregory could only manage a single before his caught at slip off Hearn, leaving the Australians at 4 for 213. Darling came in and was dropped on three by Jackson. The scoring slowed, with only five runs coming in the next 30 minutes. The score only moved on to 240 by the time lunch was reached, with Noble having taken an hour to move from 78 to 82. After lunch, scoring continued slowly before Noble was finally out, hitting a return catch to Hearn. His 89 had taken nearly five and a half hours. Combined with his not out in the first innings, he had batted for over eight hours without being dismissed. His stoicness had helped take time out of the game, so much so there was a chance the Australians would be able to get out of the match with a draw. With the Australians now five down for 255, the lead was only 79. The English bowlers were revived with that wicket and made great strains to end the innings, but Darling and new batsman Iredale held out against a sustained barrage. Darling was eventually out for 39 off Young, although Darling didn't believe the catch at short leg was taken cleanly. Kelly was then missed at slip and managed to make it through to tee with Iredale. With only a couple of hours left in the game, the chance of a result was low. Iredale and Kelly battled for over an hour in compiling a 41-run stand before the seldom-used bowling of Ranji caught the edge of Kelly's bat, having him caught behind for 26. Iredale and Labour then continued batting for another half an hour before Darling declared the innings shut. Iredale was not out 39 as the Australians ended the innings at 7 for 346. 
The English, who had been in the field for almost two days, were left with 171 to get in just over an hour. They attempted to hit everything, but time was the big enemy. Ranji played with great freedom and compiled 49 not out, although he was missed twice. Trumbull toiled away and claimed two wickets, whilst Jones took one, but the result was never in serious doubt, as the English ended the final day at 3 for 94. They had dominated the match, but the inability to hold some of their catches had cost them the opportunity to push for a win, regardless of Noble's heroics. There were seven matches between the fourth and final tests to be taking place at the Oval. The Australians lost their second match of the tour, this against Surrey. The following match saw one of the most remarkable feats by an Australian player to that point. Sussex batted first and scored 414. In response, the Australians made 624. Victor Trumper made 300 not out, spread over two days, the highest score made by an Australian in England, beating Billy Murdoch's record of 291 from 1882. He batted for just over six hours and hit 36 boundaries. He captain said to his team after the innings that none of them could bat as well as Trumper. The players then put it to a vote and unanimously determined that Trumper should be on the same financial terms as the rest of the side. The Australians' form was still patchy afterwards as they were suffering from the loss of Hill and Johns from the playing squad, leading to many of the others being overworked. They won two more matches, but lost to Kent just prior to the fifth test. Both sides made changes for the final match. The Australians dropped Laver, giving McLeod his first test of the tour. The English made four changes, Quaife, Brockwell, Young and Hearn all making way, with Rhodes, Lockwood, Townsend and debutant Arthur Jones all coming into the side. The English won the toss and chose to bat. The conditions were excellent, both for the crowd and the batting side. 20,000 people saw the English open with Jackson and Hayward, while the Australians commenced with Jones and Noble. The Australians started tightly, bowling nine consecutive maidens, but as the batsmen felt more comfortable, the runs began to flow. Jackson in particular did some of his best work through the offside, with cuts and drives finding the boundary. He was particularly harsh on Jones, taking 12 off one over. Hayward played second fiddle, but still found the boundary with powerful off drives. The bowlers were rotated with Trumbull and McLeod having their turn, but with no change in the outcome. The English 100 came up with Jackson well past his 50. Shortly before lunch, McLeod managed to catch the edge of Jackson's bat, but Trumbull spilt the catch, with English heading to the break without loss. Following lunch, Jackson brought up his second test century and was well applauded by the crowd. The partnership continued to build, going past the record of 170 set by Grayson Scotton back in 1886. Finally, Jackson mixed time to stroke against a quick run from Jones, leading to him being bowled for 118. His innings had taken just under three hours and included 18 boundaries. Hayward, who had been the supporting player in the opening partnership of 185 and just past his own half century, was then joined by Ranji. The scoring rate continued to pace, with Ranji working the ball well behind the wickets, his trademark leg glancing a highlight. Hayward's scoring rate also quickened, bringing up his own century with a score at 261, his second hundred of the series. The tea break provided little relief for the Australians, with a score rattling past 300. The ground feeling was of high quality. The English batsmen had been excellent at finding gaps all day. Finally, after just having brought up his own 50, Randy was caught by Howell in the slips off Jones. He'd made 54 in a 131 run partnership with Hayward. Hayward was then out two runs later at 318. He needed to catch the cover point off McLeod, being dismissed for 137. He'd batted for four and a half hours and hit 20 boundaries. The crowd sent around a collection for his excellent effort, raising 131 pounds for England's best batsman of the series. These wickets did not stem the flow of runs, however, as Fry and McLaren saw an opportunity against the toiling attack. The two would put on over 100 runs in the last hour of play. Fry drove strongly whilst McLaren was harsh on Noble, putting one ball from him onto the roof of the pavilion for five. With three overs to go, McLaren was out for 49, caught on the boundary by Trumper off Trumbull. Townsend navigated the last three overs with Fry, who finished the day 60 not out. The English score of 4 for 435 was the most runs scored on the first day of a test to that point. 
Another 20,000 fans crammed into the Oval to witness the second day's play. The Australians started strongly, with Fry being well caught by a running Worrell off Jones without adding to his overnight score. Bradley was then run out without scoring, with the English having lost two for one to start the day. It could have been even better, but Townsend was dropped by Kelly off Jones. He, in combination with new batsman Lockwood, set about building the total towards 500. The first bowling change of the morning broke the partnership at 479, with Lockwood inside edging a ball from Trumbull to be out for 24. Newman Jones combined with Townsend to take the score past 500, before Townsend became Jones' fourth victim, having his middle stump set and flying, with his score on 38. Another 48-run stand between Jones and Lilly took the score to 551, with Lilly being the last man out at 576. Noble claimed the last two wickets. Jones had taken four wickets, but gone for over 170 runs in doing so, whilst McLeod and Trumbull were also expensive. Linger's score was the highest in matches in England, being the 551 by Murdoch's Australians in 1884. The Australians, whose best possible result in the match was now a draw, had half an hour to navigate before lunch. Trumbull and Worrell managed to make it through, although Trumbull was lucky to be dropped twice. Shortly after lunch, his luck ran out. He near catch back to Jones to be out for 24. Jones had more fortune soon after, strangling Trumper down the leg side. The Australians were now 2 for 44, and a small opportunity was open for the English. However, Worrell was joined by Noble, who kept his form from the previous match. He batted with great care, scoring only 9 runs in 50 minutes. Worrell did most of the scoring, and the two took the score onto 85 before Noble fell, bowled by Lockwood. Darling replaced him, and with Worrell took the score on carefully past 100. Worrell brought up his 50, but was out soon afterwards, caught off the bowling of Lockwood for 55. At 4 for 120, there was another chance at England to force the match. However, Darling was joined by Gregory. The two were not tempted to hit out, preferring to slowly grind out a score. Gregory was the less secure of the two, nearly playing on before edging a ball on 33 to Ranji at slip, who failed to hold a simple chance. At the other end, Darling moved safely past 50 and pushed the total on to 200. McLaren tried all his bowls, but it was only in the final over of the day that a breakthrough could be achieved, with Darling being caught by Fry at third man off Lockwood, a ball after being dropped by McLaren. That ended a 100-run stand between the two batsmen, which meant the Australians ended the day on 5 for 220, still trailing by 356 runs. The final day again saw 20,000 attendees, but most were of the opinion that the only possible result was a draw. Gregory, starting on 37, was joined at the wicket by Iredale. Gregory brought up his 50 soon after the commencement of play, but Iredale fell for 9 straight afterwards. Kelly was then dismissed for 4, and with a score now at 7 for 257, English hopes rose. However, McLeod combined with Gregory and stuffed out any hope of a quick end to the innings. They extended the total well past 300, and more importantly took time out of the game. Gregory took a liking to the bowling of Rhodes and dispatched him to the boundary three times in two overs, eventually leading him to bring up his century, his third overall and second in England. The two took the score under 340 before Gregory fell to Lockwood for 117, made in just over three hours with 15 fours. The innings ended soon after, with the McLeod left 31 not out. Lockwood added the final two wickets to his tally, giving him the impressive figures of 7 for 71 for the innings. The Australians still trailed by 220 and thus had to follow on. With just over two sessions left, there was little chance of a result, especially with the pitch still playing well. Worrell and McLeod opened and saw through to lunch comfortably. Following the break, Worrell decided to be more aggressive. He was lucky to survive a catching chance off Jones, but continued to find the boundary. He brought up his second 50 of the match in 65 minutes, and the two batsmen took the score past 100. When 116 was reached, the first wicket fell, with Worrell out for 75 caught behind off Hayward. Noble replaced him and played safe cricket in partnership with McLeod. Again, all the bowlers were tried with little success. The Australians took the score on past 200 and were 16 short of parity with the English before McLeod was out for 77, mistiming a shot off Rhodes. His efforts in both innings had taken many hours out of the game and played a big part in its overall result. 
Trumper and Gregory were out cheaply to Rhodes, but Noble and Trumbull saw out time, with the match ending with the Australians on 5 for 254. Noble remained 69 not out. As such, the Australians won the series 1-0 and retained the Ashes. They were fortunate somewhat as the last two tests they were playing for behind, but the depth of their batting allowed them to hold out. At a dinner following the ending of the test series hosted by the president of Surrey, it was lamented by the hosts that they had played such dour cricket compared to batsmen like Trumper, Hill and Darling. Darling responded by suggesting that all hits that go over the boundary on the full should be classed as six, rather than just those that went out of the ground, as a way of encouraging attacking cricket. He was urged to ride on this to the MCC, who approved the change across cricket. He also helped clarify the law regarding subfielders. Since older amateurs like WJ Grace tended to put on younger players to field for themselves, Darling pushed for a change that only substitutes agreed to by the opposition captain would be allowed, and generally would be limited to the name 12th man. The oval test marked the end of the careers of both Worrell and Iredale. Worrell would go on to become one of the first Australian rules coaches, winning premierships in the VFL with Carlton and Essendon. Iredale's career only lasted 14 tests, but his record stood up with his contemporaries, averaging in the mid-30s with two centuries. He would stay involved in cricket, become a selector for the national side, and later on being the chairman of the New South Wales Cricket Association. There were six first-class matches left on the tour, with the Australians winning two and drawing four. It had been a long tour, and the injuries had meant that many of the players were jaded by the end, having played consistent cricket for months on end. However, they are still regarded as one of the most successful sides, winning 16 of the 35 matches played, with only three losses. With the strength of the batting meaning, it was difficult for oppositions to bowl them out twice in three days. Across the test, Noble was a leading run scorer, with 367 at over 50, with five half centuries, although Hill scored 301 in only three matches. Jones led the wicket-takers with 26, doing most of his best work in the early matches, whilst Trumbull with 15 and Noble with 13 provided good support. Across the whole tour, seven batsmen scored over 1,000 runs, with Darling leading the way with 1,941, including five centuries, whilst Trumbull, Jones and Howe all took over 100 wickets. The leadership of Darling also came in for high praise. Much more of a disciplinarian than his predecessor Trot, he was still as respected as the former captain, with his players seeing him as a fair leader who would always defend their interests against slights from the establishment. The tour was the final undertaken by an Australian side that was representing a collection of colonies. Federation was on the horizon, and next time the Australians returned, it would be as one nation. The tour had also introduced the world to some of the majesty of Victor Trumper, and on that return visit, he would lay claim to the mantle of being the greatest Australian batsman ever seen. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.